Episode 107 of the Michael Anthony Show, and we are back. We're back late, which is now becoming the norm. And I would like to apologise <coughs> to the listeners of this show for the lack of transparency regarding the numerous issues that surround the Michael Anthony Show team. A lot of questions in the air and a lot of answers to be given, some of which I intend on dealing with in today's show. The first thing I want to say to you is I'm not in good form. have been for a while. Um, there's numerous factors affecting that. Well, people are going to have their analysis, their interpretations, their opinions on why that is. Some people are going to say it's because there's a video of, on Garda Siakana, um, for the English listeners, that is the Irish police, using taxpayer money to film themselves dancing around numerous, around numerous locations of Ireland, which is an absolute disgrace. But I don't think we should be shocked that the guards avoid doing their job Shergar has just been seen in the New York City horse and carriage game. There's more dodgy boxes in Tala than there is failed indie bands, and Philly Cairn still hasn't come home from lunch. The sinking sand of despair The smell of dread in the in my own fear I'm going to die and I need to cry ah. But I don't expect anything different Just look at these street stops The coronavirus checkpoints When you're sitting in a mate's car Who has spent 10 to 15 years being sound Been a good guy Someone who you have fun with And now he's getting paranoid Because there's guards from me, from Offaly From Leitrim, from Louth Asking you where you're going. They don't care. They don't care because it's something they're supposed to do. They're the guards. So go towards the checkpoints with a bit more confidence. Because you could pull up at one of those checkpoints with the Columbia 3 in the back of your motor. With a literal blueprint for the next head shop you're going to open in Rathmines. Wearing a t-shirt saying vote no to gay marriage 2015. And you'd come towards the car. You'd pull down the window, Columbia 3B in the back. Where are you going? Yeah, I'm just heading up to my mate Larry Murphy's gaff there, yeah? His mate Ian Huntley's over from England. They're having a bit of a disco, and there's going to be young girls. Work away! And the form's nothing got to do with the fact that I was clamped the other day on a street in North Dublin, by the way. North Dublin is, is more different to South Dublin than California is. What, what makes it so different is, I'm not saying worse or better, but eerily strange, unusual and foreign. And the same goes for North Dubliners when, when they're in South Dublin. That is that you see the opposite version of yourself. You see the Shelbyville version of yourself. There's a lot of people listening to this on both sides of the Liffey who aren't aware there's another side. There's another side where they're doing the exact same shit, have similar accents, a similar class system, because the difference there is overrated, very similar shops, one or two more galas on the North. I recommend heading out there. It would change your life. Not only was this yellow piece of metal put on my front wheel, but there was a chap across the road. Oh, is that your car there, is it? Uh, yeah, I thought he might work for the clamping company. Do you want me to take that off you? I still thought he worked for the clamping company. How? Doesn't matter how. I, I now know he doesn't work for the clamping company. I've already told him it's my car that walks closer. 50 euro, that'll be gone tomorrow morning. Uh, yeah, no, I have, just, uh, I have to go in and check, check my mate. It's not my... You said it was your car. No, I just have to go in. I have to go in then and hide in my mate's gaff for two hours. 
The concept of clamping is one of the most embarrassing things society actually has to offer. And what makes it even worse is they don't realize that the 80 euro that I paid the clampers to take this metal object off my wheel still leaves me at least 1,600 quid in the green. I owed them that money. I don't think they understand where I usually park. I regularly use disabled spots. Why wouldn't I? They're never taken, and they're closer to the destination. Why is there so much stigma surrounding the use of disabled spots? Why does it matter? The accusation towards people with a disability, that for some reason they're offended by everything, they don't care. Some of the best crack human beings I've ever encountered are people who have disabilities. They're more aware of what's important than life. They're nearly encouraging you to use the spot. They want you to. They hate that tag and that picture of the dude in the wheelchair on the ground. It ruins their day. Back in the heyday when you're younger, when you're in your early 20s and you're using disabled bathrooms, for unforgivable reasons, let's be honest here, never have I opened that door and walked out to somebody who has a disability tapping their foot. It's more of a go on my son. Did you enjoy the extra room? Yeah, I did. What did you make of the white handlebar? Yeah, it was interesting. How'd you find the different lighting? Really good, bro. And how about that? Okay, let me get on with my night. I'm not talking to you any longer. Great sense of humor in the community of human beings suffering of a disability. Why wouldn't there be? Why wouldn't there be? The, the, the social exclusion we place on them by the, the furore that surrounds using a disabled bathroom or a jacks, it's, it's, it's horrendous. It should be dealt with in the doll era next week. I spent time when I was 16 doing community work, and the people there were all state. They were some of the finest human beings I've ever met. Did not enjoy losing heavily in games of pool, but bar that, they, they checked out. But this is to any clamper, if you are listening. I still owe you money. I park on motorways. But that's the bad mood, the lack of dopamine. That's, that's what's verbalizing this, really. It's not true. I'm soft. I've never really had a touch with the law, bar on one occasion. In 2017, when I had finished an internship in an accountancy firm, Jesus Christ, I don't even know if I should air that. <clears throat> My name is Michael Anthony, and I've done an internship in an accountancy firm. <clears throat> People were eating lunch at their desks, and the manager's sister was in Fade Street, so they found my essay that I had my laptop about how I was going to commit a mass execution, so they uh, sent me an email on the Friday of the sixth week saying there's no need to come in next week, so it was sorted. But on the last day of that, just to feel real again, myself and, and Pat Martin, <clears throat> myself and Pat Martin um, went to a boozer in town, and I needed to feel like myself again. I needed to feel real. I spent six weeks sitting beside people who ate around four sausage sandwiches a day and sat at a hot desk doing absolutely no work. And I'm not a shallow guy. I've no problem with ugly people, but there's a limit when there's that many congregated at once. Fucking revolting, these places. At one point, there was one guy, and he was on a fucking... Um, he was on some kind of video to some other dude who worked there, some kind of Skype thing. And I was just having some fun in the background. He, he slams down his laptop instantly. The partner's right there! The partner's there, is he? And what's the partner going to do? You fucking gimp. And fuck your future son and your future daughter. Because they're probably going to be like you. 
you shouldn't be allowed to inhabit the universe. Again, this is the wrong thing to do, but I couldn't forgive myself for how I spent my last six weeks. So I knew I was up to no good when I went to the bar that night. So it starts off. There was a few other guys there. Me and Pat Martin start betting on American horses. There was things on the front of the horses dragging them. It wasn't. It wasn't just a clear horse race. They, they, there was there were, there was a wooden thing in front of them. We were losing large amounts of money, drinking four or five pints every half an hour. It'd been just acting like Johnny Knoxville and Bam Bangera, essentially. So afterwards we leave, I suggest the casino, we go to the casino, we lose even more money, then we walk out of there very angry. Even with the drink and with the deliberate self-sabotage, we were annoyed by losing money. You're talking about Pat Martin here, the guy The guy doesn't like shedding dough. So we make a right turn, we go to a restaurant, a fast food joint for a late night burger. We're sitting there, I go to the bathroom. When I come back from the bathroom, there's a corridor, I realise there's a door leading out to the front of the restaurant, so I say I'm going to do a gag here. I take the door out to the front of the restaurant, I knock on the fucking window, and Pat thinks I'm suggesting we dine and dash, even though we're 40. So he follows me out. Don't know why he does, but he follows me out. I'm looking at him going, why are you coming out here? It's a joke. He comes out. The security guard catches him. They're pinning him down on the ground. I'm halfway up Georgia Street. So then I come back. I can't watch his little Des Bishop head painting the footpath on Georgia Street. So I come back, and there's a few Slovakians, and I get a bit verbose. Don't touch them. I do not touch them. One of them touches me. As he touches me, like he's touching Pat, I'm a bigger man, I... I move away a bit. He calls his boys over from across the road. I'm face down now on the pavement. The guards drive by. These four Slovakian bouncers take me and Pat Martin. Have I mentioned it's half ten in the evening and there's families here? We're taken into the front of the restaurant and we're face down on the ground in front of people. 2017. Guards handcuff us as we're in these Bret Hart shoulder holds and we get thrown into the back of a van. We get brought to the guard session. These burgers, the, the combined meal here, we're, t- we're talking 22 euro. We offer numerous times whilst we're in the station. Listen, can we just give you the 22 euro? We didn't mean to do this. It's a misunderstanding. We were only out the street. We saw the wrong door. No, they, they, they are so happy that they get to waste four hours of their shift picking up these two burger thieves that they keep us there. We're in a sale. We're in separate sales. Like Bobby Sands and the boys in the 80s. We robbed some burgers. Papin, Pat and grotesquely afraid of authority plays by the rules and we weren't in communication we were kept in separate cells i was in there seeing the old triangle i heard nothing from his so he goes out he gets like oh by the time i come out to the lobby i just decide to start blanking them so we sit there ask you a question uh, what's her name saying nothing hello what's her name saying nothing i think i'm daniel day lewis in the name of the father I, I don't know why what age you continue to say nothing so I adopt a silent treatment, thus making the case much more seriously, possibly out of a curiosity of how corrupt and embarrassing the guards are, whilst knowing that our case was not serious enough to get us into trouble. But because of my behaviour, we leave, and the summons actually comes. Me and Pat are going to court. So me and Pat have to get a solicitor. We get a solicitor. Why are you here? We nick burgers. Now really, why are you here? We nick burgers. Grand. I'll represent you. She then has to go make her inquiry. She gets the, the summary of what apparently happened. Turns out the, the bouncers are paro. They don't want to get fucked out of the country for common assault. So they claim they're assaulted. So now we've nicked burgers, Pat gets beaten up, I defend them, and now we're suddenly, suddenly we're getting tried for assaulting Slovakian bouncers. I deny it. I knew we didn't do it. I'm not the type of guy who gets blackout drunk. I knew what we were doing. So we go into court. This was six court visits overall. By the end of it, the, the, the paparazzi were nearly taking our picture at the front. I'm not being funny. We had to wear suits to this thing over Nick and Eddie's burgers. So we go in, he reads out what the charges are. 
we're going to stand in the box the next time. And then it comes out that the assault charges are dropped. They read through it. They check the cameras. It did not happen. So then they say to us, here's the deal. You nick the burgers, we'll offer you an adult caution. Because I was on such a buzz that we didn't actually assault them and I'd been right, I said, fuck this, we'll test it more. Solicitor, everyone said, just take the adult caution. It means nothing. It doesn't affect your life at all. I go, fuck the adult caution. We are not taking it. Pat's like, we'll just take the adult caution. I go, we are not taking the adult caution. So now shit has gotten serious. The guards are now heavily involved in this case because we are throwing an adult caution back in their face. I deny everything. We didn't walk out with any burgers. It's a lie. It's all made up. I walked out briefly. I was having a fucking cigarette. Pat came out for a smoke. We were going to go back in there. Solicitor's confidence. She's like, what a buzz. They're just two middle-class kids set up by guards who really wanted to get them. It's much easier work than actually going and, and getting involved with guys who are dangerous, who have knives. So they back us. They go in. They say this shit to the judge and stuff. And then we, we're scheduled to meet again. I get called into the forecourts, me and Pat. I remember walking into a room in which the solicitor and the barrister she'd now got involved were watching the footage of what happened in Eddie's. And again, as I said, we told them we didn't nick anything. It was all a lie. It's a setup because we were overconfident for getting away with the false assault claim. I walked into the room. She turns around. She goes, get out. I'll be with you in a minute. I go, she's shouting at me. Where's she shouting at? I don't know. Wait 10 minutes, really nervously sitting in the forecourts, waiting 10 minutes, and we bump into somebody who we vaguely know who's like practicing as a young barrister and just had to get the shit bored out of us before they eventually came out and go, why did you lie to us? I go, what are you talking about? Why did you lie to us? We just saw the footage. Not only was this a robbery of a burger, this was a fucking heist. Did you plan this shit before you went into the restaurant or what's the fucking story? What's the code you're using with your hands? How did he know when to come? And by the way, I don't know why the Slovakians are dropping the assault charges. Because one of them passed away. So, from being the hard man, taking on the guards, accusing them of being corrupt, we then have to go back to court, stand in the box, and overrate our charity work and care about um, social issues so the judge can think we're two decent young men who made a mistake. And me and Pat put a combined grand into the charity box and have a combined two grand in legal fees. And in fairness to the barrister that day, when we walked out of the courtroom, he could have said many things. Why did you lie? Why didn't you take the adult caution? Why have you wasted my time? Are you too mental? He just looked at us and said, I was one expensive burger, boys. And that was the last we saw of him. But that's about it. That sounds like a wild story and it sounds like a big situation, but it wasn't. We walked out of a restaurant accidentally without paying for a burger and ended up in court six times. And while we're talking about Pat Martin, there's a lot of people asking questions. Where is Pat? Why hasn't he been on the show? First things first, it's not my business to um, talk about his business. But as his teammate, I will say that Pat Martin is currently undergoing treatment for gambling addiction. We knew things were getting out of hand. He lost 200 quid on the Thumb of War outside Whitefriars Street Church. Backing Ian Woosnam to win the up-and-coming Masters was concerning. His Shane Long to get the golden boot bet, I didn't like at all. But last night is when things got really out of hand. He couldn't cash out the bet. He made it before he started the treatment. But weeks ago, he claimed he had a hunch for the United Southampton game. And that was under 2.5 and, and under 20 in the card index. All we can do is rally around Pat Martin now and support him. He's going through what he's going through. He's a figure of admiration, both within the ears of the listeners and here behind the microphones 
at MA Studios. So we hope he recovers from it. And he will. Gambling is a dangerous beast. You only have to look at Cahill McCarran, who's been on this show, to talk to you about that. It's not something that's involved in my life anymore, as I am engaging in what we will call a dopamine fast. I previously mentioned how I'm not in good form. It's because I'm starving myself of dopamine. I'm quitting fast food, and that isn't because I was in a spot four days ago where there was numerous chicken burgers on the menu. So they named them with these ridiculously vague and quite embarrassing, what looks like an attempt at humor names. So the the young lady behind the counter, quite attractive, which made things worse, wearing a mask, so possibly not attractive because the amount of beaks that have been successfully hidden ever since this pandemic started nearly makes it better for the beak heads. What do you want? Uh, just get the just get the chicken sandwich. Yeah, but which one? Just that one there. I can't see the sign. The sign she couldn't, in fairness. The sign was out in the street. Start checking the phone, thinking of faking a phone call. Don't know what to do. There's a queue of people behind me. I just go, yeah, cheeky, cheeky, bang, bang. That's not why I'm quitting fast food, though. I'm quitting it because it's an abuse of my dopamine levels. Pornography. I'm not disengaging with pornography because the stepsister genre has gotten so outrageous that for some reason now they're not just stepsisters, but they quite clearly have an intellectual disability. What game are you playing? Yeah, Crash Bandicoot. I don't know how to play. Yeah, just press X. What's sexy or at all arousing about PlayStation and porn? I'm stuck behind the couch, stepbrother. Why? Just step out from behind it. Who gets stuck behind the couch? What are you, a fucking cocker spaniel? Ew, you peed on the seat and it's all over my ass. You have to wipe it up. Why? Why did you call me into the jacks? Why didn't you just wipe it up and keep it yourself? Manners. Will you take some sexy pics for me to get back at my boyfriend? No, take them in the mirror. That is unbelievably inappropriate. That's not the reason I'm quitting porn, though. It's because it's an abuse of my dopamine. YouTube. Never was on social media, so I could escape that. But just needless even phone calls and elongated conversations. These are all things that are numbing us and stopping us from feeling pleasure. We are in a society and in a culture in which we can opt out and we don't starve ourselves from anything. So right now I'm on nothing but steamed vegetables and fish. I don't even eat fruit because I know that elongated periods of excessive dopamine, they take away your number of receptors. So by me borrowing myself from this, I'm increasing them. So in four weeks, a strawberry is going to taste like a magnum, double caramel for me. That's what I'm doing, and that's what everyone should be doing, because the world we're in, the situation we're giving ourselves, it's a benefit. The pandemic's going on so long now, there's no point in trying to fight it. It is life-ruining. Do you ever see one of those Jewish L ones, who's like 94, who lived through World War II? She doesn't give a shit about anything. And we gave a shit about too much as a society. We deserve this. Everyone became such a victim. Everything was a fucking issue. So live a life in which you bar pleasure so your mind becomes accustomed to it. And then we can get through this pandemic and stop fucking complaining. We've Deliveroo. We've unlimited access to US television. Nearly too much so that the newspaper industry is now fucking ruined and local news no longer matters. Back in the day, you walked in the Jack Charlton era to a pub in Marion Row, Irish Times, Irish Independent, everyone's reading it, everyone's getting up to date with their news, but now everyone is on the same fucking news, Fox News, CNN, YouTube, Facebook, and we suddenly all have an opinion on Biden. Who cares? Back in the day, they knew these American presidents won't affect our fucking embarrassingly irrelevant Irish lives, unless they make a slight altercation to the visa system, which they won't. Now we're deluded and care about Kim Kardashian. Originally she's a joke, and now she's taken seriously. There's benefits to this. 
We had too many aspirations and dreams, unrealistic levels of it. Everyone wanted to be a fucking entrepreneur. Everyone thought it was about hard work, getting up early and attacking the day. Clean eating. That's not what they called it back in the 40s when you see like a group of Italian-Americans outside an ice cream shop. And they're all in their 30s and have size 28 waists. They weren't on diets. They just didn't abuse luxury and pleasure. And that's all we chase. But luckily, the world has fucked itself up a bit. So it's taken a huge amount of luxury and pleasure away. No live events. No meeting up with people. So let's start acting like this is the world now. I've cut out the carbs. I've cut out the porn. I've cut out the alcohol. And I've cut out the cigarettes. Because I'm cheating myself. I'm making myself too used to them. So I'm not actually prepared for this world. The whole thing about it isn't getting through it. Or blaming the circumstances. You yourself have to give yourself weapons. And how you give yourself weapons is by retraining your mind. To be able to cope with fucking anything. How do you make yourself stronger? Pain. Give yourself deliberate depression. So real depression doesn't get you. So you're ready for a gun. You think, oh, depression. You You think you're hard. I haven't eaten a carb in four weeks. And when I go on walks in the woods, I take human shits in them for no reason. Do you wipe your ass? No. Of course I don't wipe my ass. I drive home with a shitty ass. Did I not tell you? I'm living fake depression in order to avoid you. No one thinks you're hard. Get the fuck out of the door, you loser. All right, see you later. I'm off to target some influencers. I have a few Instagram posts coming up tonight about their mental health issues. Yeah, looking for around four or 5,000 likes. What are you boys up to? Get the fuck out, depression, you gimp. Irish weed, anyone? No. Smoking Irish weed makes you hang around. Right, go on, coke. It's not even real coke. Get out, man. Seriously, you're wrecking the night. That's the buzz I'm on. No more luxuries. No more pleasures. It's an unbelievable buzz. I, I couldn't recommend it more. Four boiled eggs at two o'clock of the day. Cod. Yeah, it can be any fish, but I go for cod because it's so fucking flaky and dry and horrible. An old school broccoli, not the long stem shit, no lemon, no pepper, no salt. Again, none of them affect the calorie consumption. You can do that, you can flavor. I don't want that. I want my broccoli looking like John B. Keynes having it for dinner. And then you go to bed early. And if you can't sleep, you don't whip out YouTube. You sit there and you stare at the fucking roof. Like the boys in Comanum Jail were doing. With your thoughts for three hours. And bore the shit out of yourself. And overthink everything. And then wake up and go throw on a cold shower. Starve yourself to warm back into the four boiled eggs. The broccoli and the fish. So that's what my humor's about. But it's deliberate. And I'm embracing it. And I believe that I'm giving myself the armor. And the stability to look at the coronavirus. Which is never ending. And to go take me on, you bastard. Because I'm not letting it take me. Let's just become weird fucking anti-pleasure 1930s fuckers who nobody can mess with so we can tell our grandchildren, oh, you fucking everything on the day. You just wouldn't have a struggle if you just could fucking hit you in the face. I want to be that guy. <coughs> Without the emphysema. But a lot of people asking, is Pat Martin dead? And for anyone who is genuine, he isn't dead. Pat Martin lives on. Even if he was dead, Pat Martin lives on. He's that type of cat. It must be difficult and I can only assume from your silence, by the way, Tomas has been here. It must be difficult to to come in as this because you haven't lit you haven't lit people up necessarily. No. No, it's been strange. Yeah, I even think that comment it just doesn't appeal to me. No. You know what I mean? It's been strange. It's like something fucking Michael Martin comes out with. 
who, by the way, mentioned takeaway pints in an official speech. I haven't checked, but as he stood down, since he, since he actually used the words takeaway pints in an official speech, what I'm saying is pull your socks up and feel welcome here. People aren't going to like you. They don't like you. I'll tell you that firsthand. They'll well, tell you that. I've already received a bit yeah, of abuse. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Just relax on the ball. You're fine. I'm not going to say it's good to have you here. It's different, but fair play to you. Yeah. Pat might not be dead, but Screech is. People don't seem to understand quite how significant culturally Saved by the Bell was. Look at the six characters of this show. We've got Samuel Screech Powers. The nerd. The guy who was academically tuned in, who's been blanked by his peers out of their ignorance and, and youthful naivety. The guy who's going the furthest, but they keep right at the back. Very well cast, very well acted. Zach Morris, the manipulator, the wannabe businessman, the kid who had everything handed to him. Quite an evil dude, Zach Morris. There's a there's a, a show called Zach Morris's Thrash that I recommend watching that, that, that breaks down his narcissism and the fact that Zach Morris is possibly the the biggest psychopath ever, ever to make our TV screens. A.C. Slater, the irrelevant athlete who has nothing to say of impact. Think about the A.C. scenes. We see biceps. We see Jesse Spano being inappropriately touched on daytime television, but we don't really see anything interesting about his character. By the time his old man showed up to Bayside, building the lovable loser who ended up working with kids, but, but had so little going on elsewhere that it became his life. Kelly Kapowski, another evil whore whose morals were overlooked because she could smile at you and get her pom-poms out in a way that made you feel different inside and that's the way we still approach life there's people who get away with everything because of their looks and there's people who get fucked over because of their looks and that wasn't just seen inside by the bell that was seen off screen with the way Dustin Diamond was ostracized by that crew for years and I believe him I believe his tell-all book in which he says Zach Morris is on steroids and that they were all shagging inappropriately behind the scenes and taunting him and excluding him from events 100% because not only was the show made up of pin-up young teenagers who, who looked unrealistic and everybody fancied every single one. I mean, you'd do Turtle, you'd do Spano, you'd do Kapowski, you'd do Morris. I don't know a bloke who wouldn't do Morris. I guarantee you, when I was 16, I'd shag Zach Morris. And there's nobody listening here who wouldn't. You've AC Slater, who some people could get. He's not my style, but I get it. And then you've Screech. So if you actually look at how it went off the screen, although his comedic timing was best for the show, although he's the longest-serving character, in the acting game, which is something that is quite shallow and based off your physical cinematic appearance, he was 100% left out behind the scenes. He was 100% envied because they knew that he had a bit of natural talent that they did not have. I mean, if you look at all their careers post-Saved by the Bell, it's not only Screech's that was absolutely embarrassing, but Screech struggled with it. Screech said he acted as Screech from 12 to 23 because he was in the, all the shows after. So he lost who he was, and he was playing a loser on screen. He was playing a guy who was continuously belittled. That it definitely ate into behind the scenes. And the shit he said was true. And then they all got together, excluded him from the Jimmy Fallon reunion, threatened him probably with legal action, and there was agents ringing him going, Dustin, listen, your career is over if you stand by what you're saying about these people. So he went back in his argument and said it wasn't real. And now they're all coming out doing tributes for him. Dustin Diamond was an innovator. Of course he did the porno. Of course that was wrong, but... After he did it, he came out with a true story about why he did it. His mate came in and goes, Paris Hilton has got 14 million for a porno. Screech has to be worth a million. And he said, you know what? The social taboo aspect of having a sex tape doesn't exceed a million quid. He told us that straight up dude. Dustin Diamond is a left behind enigma. 
somebody who had numerous backs turned on him and was thrown into the limelight with a level of isolation I've never really seen somebody survive before. It was lung cancer that got him in the end, but think about what you thought of Dustin Diamond before this happened. You literally thought, I'd rather be anybody in the world than the guy who acted as Screech. Stories of him stabbing people in boozers. As I said, sex tapes. Coming out with ridiculous books behind the bell that people say are all lies, even though it's probably truth. And he fought through it. He was an innovator. A disrespected innovator. So his death does sadden me, shock me. And it it crosses my mind in those two to three hours I'm staring at the roof each night during this, this pleasure fast. And as I said, it comes back to physical appearance. It's so much easier to believe the actor is Zach Morris and the actor is Slater over him because they can shag actresses. They can chat up agents. They can smile in an interview. They can model. They can advertise your clothes. What are you, you going to put on Screech? Borrow a pair of white Converse and a possible piano key tie. Nothing. He's not marketable. But he was saved by the bell. It wasn't Zach and his fucking timeouts and his idolization of white water rafting patronizing disabled women, racistly dressing up as a Native American. And maybe there's something wrong with me for knowing this much about Save by the Bell, I don't know, you tell me. But shallowness and appearance were the detriment of Dustin Diamond. The same thing goes for Marlon Manson. Listen, we all know that the allegations made against Marlon Manson at the minute, a guy whose stage name is made up of a mixture of Marlon Monroe and Charles Manson, we all know the accusations are quite serious. But if he didn't look like that, would he have been such a target his whole life? I know these allegations exist now and they, they need to be taken seriously. He denies them quite elegantly and it reads like a, a fair enough denial. I mean, you can't accuse the guy of doing anything until there's evidence. But we were also told that Marlon Manson took out his ribs to suck his own cock. Why would he want to do that? That didn't happen. Why would anyone want to suck their own cock? I don't get that. We were also told that Marlon Manson wanted to kill puppies on stage and wouldn't start his gig until it didn't happen either. And he's come out numerous times and he's denied it. Marlon Manson was anti-church, he was anti-traditionalism, and in a way he was an idol, an icon of, of 90s left-wing culture. But his hair is a bit too black, he wears the makeup, now we're willing to fuck him over, even though he's done much more for society than any of the people we fucking idolise now. Who in the music game now is a better person than Marlon Manson pre these allegations which are not yet proven? I don't know one. Ed Sheeran? With his little fucking shit acoustic guitar and a paw on it? No. Marlon Manson was brave. And if Marlon Manson didn't look like he hung around Temple Bar offering people a one euro coin for two rollies out of a giant amber leaf pouch, and I mean a ginormous one, we wouldn't be judging him so quickly. we go, interesting. Here's one. Would the allegations even exist if he didn't look like that? One of the people who they've been interviewing recently, Jenna Jameson, once dubbed the queen of porn... And she's coming out saying that Marlon used to bite her during sex and used to really want anal all the time. Yeah, it's it's strange. He probably wanted anal because he knew that she'd perhaps done it 200 to 400 times in her life. It was a different type of anal then with the traditional non-porn acting human being. And the biting during sex, again, if he was into biting... But he played number eight for Wales. Would we care as much? Probably not. And that follow-up interview showed me this could be a bit of a witch hunt against Marlon Manson here. This could be a little bit of a witch hunt here. I believe the allegations, but the follow-up interviews then when people come out with outrageous claims against his name. I'm not into it. But that's social media. That's Twitter. 
We love to complain, we love to spread it, and even lockdown can silence that. Once again, Marcus Rashford with the racial allegations. Axel Tunzabi, yes. It is absolutely horrendous that people are using such an outdated term underneath their posts. But there is a question that I do have to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Why don't we bar the word from being able to be typed? If you're trying to tell me that we don't have the coding and technological capabilities to have a system in which that word written out can be instantly detected and whipped out or taken down. Why allow it be typed? There's a way of controlling that with numerous words that are causing such controversy online because they don't want it to stop. They don't want it to stop. It's more hits, it's more retention, it's more use of their fucking software and their systems and more addiction to the life that they've created for all of us. There's companies out there now that are deliberately doing controversial, borderline homophobic graffiti and then going home and writing on the blog, did you see that homophobic graffiti when it's them who did it because the company's logo is just beside it? There's people spreading rumors against themselves now. So it's not relevant. It's redundant. When you see these racial allegations or these claims of abuse online, how aren't we asking, why can't we just stop the abuse now? Because that's where it spreads. If somebody was sitting in their gaff saying, Agzil Tunzabi is a on a Tuesday night, we don't hear it. It's terrible. It's a bad way to behave and act. But he keeps it in a sitting room over his four cans of Stella. He doesn't have the ability to type it on Instagram and Twitter so fucking 400,000 people see it under a post and then millions more in the newspaper coverage, making us aware of racism and making some people angrier and then other people want to do it more. Social outcasts who have nothing better to do than be racist and get attention. You're not going to be able to sit everyone down and, and have a lockdown and guard the checkpoints going, are you racist? Okay, you can pass. That's not going to happen. We've done it with the coronavirus. There's no way we're going to stop people from deliberately antagonizing people through the use of outdated and offensive terms. The responsibility is on the companies to make sure it can't be seen on it. What is the problem with that? How is there not a block on it? Or even have an account. Have options for accounts. So Rashford, Tunzabi and these people can have a button where you can detect comments that are deliberately offensive, and they're gone. And people are going to say that's not their responsibility, they're the victims, they should be able to post freely. They're not going to be able to. And there's, there's gay people, and there's people who support a certain political ideology, and there's people who are ugly, there's people who just have an arse that's too big, or even showing off elements of their life that some people disagree with, that people aren't going to stop abusing. And people shouldn't be abusing these people, but... You stop the abuse by putting the onus on the platform where the abuse exists. Not on the people doing it. You're not going to stop them. That's just human nature. Taunting will always exist. A lot of it isn't actual out-and-out racism. They're going for that word because they know it will capture the most attention, stir up the most hysteria. As I said two, three shows ago, some of the messages I'm getting from people already Tommy Robinson, who gives a shit? They're not actually going to break the jaw. They don't mean to call you an Irish famine fuck. They don't, they don't care. You could easily turn around and go, that's racism, mentioning the famine. Is it? Do they know anything about it? No. They're sitting in a gaff in Newcastle, and they've heard somebody make an IRA hunger strike joke four or five times at family dinners when they were kids, and they're whipping it out because they heard an Irish accent. It becomes racism if it's thrown all over the place. And there is bellends out there. Even if they were a fat muppet speaking into a mic like me and Tommy Robinson, who if they received that abuse, would do an Instagram post saying, 
only trying to do a podcast and can't believe that some people are saying this. Why would you want to show people? Why would you want to make an issue out of it? By ignoring it, it's not racism. And the best way of ignoring is also barring. And if you're telling me the Twitter, Facebook and Instagram that are literally following us and have taken over our brains, don't have the ability to bar that language, well then you're surely just lying. Surely just lying. There's been a few other deaths, one being Thomas More, the soldier who walked around his garden. Mm. R.I.P. to Tommy Moore. Could have done a bit more than laps of his garden for this praise, though, I find. I mean, it was inspiring to see him raise that much money, but for me, Tom Brady getting to the Super Bowl at 43 is a bigger deal than walking your garden at a winner. Just a few laps. That's all it was. Huge money, though, so R.I.P. to him. And also Larry King, um, one of the greats of the broadcasting industry. And although his skin was made of literal leather, and he was married eight times. I think we should tip the hat to him. We're going to talk about some football now. And there's some people who might not like that. There's some people who might like it. And I don't give a shit. But somebody asked me an interesting question the other day. And it wasn't who were the top ten players in the history of the Premier League. It was what were the ten greatest seasons individually in the history of the Premier League. It's a very difficult question to answer. And if you Google it, you get some very obvious articles that give all the traditional names. I don't think that's the truth. I think if you're looking at the greatest individual seasons in the Premier League, the criteria has to be the cultural impact of it and how outrageous within the context that season was and what that season symbolised, why that exact season is the season that changed everything. Is that the one that made us go, okay, that is what that player means and that's why he'll be spoken about for the next 40 years? All these things matter. So when I got asked that question, I wanted to present the listeners with a top 10, with a top 10 greatest individual Premier League seasons by players that I believe I've ever witnessed. Again, there's going to be players left out of this, you won't believe, who are just too consistent for me to pinpoint that season. It's about the season. Skulls isn't in it. Too good constantly. I could say 03. I could use season for Skulls. I'm not doing it. Roy Keane, although PFA Player of the Year winner in 2000, too good constantly. Gerrard's not in it. Rooney, Lampard. They're not there. Ruud van Nistelrooy's not there. Because it's about seasons. I, th- I think we get that now. Number 10 on my list of the 10th greatest Premier League season I've ever seen. Kevin Phillips, 2000. There's people here saying, how can you have Kevin Phillips in there? If you play with Niall Quinn as your strike partner for a season and get 30 league goals in the top flight, you're in my list. He got PFA Team of the Year that season playing for Sunderland. Their big money signing that summer was Kevin Kilban. We're talking about a guy here who'd never played a Premier League game before this season. His previous two seasons have been the championship. He scored 29 and 23 league goals. But to come to the Premier League, scored 30 for Sunderland when they come 7th. Sunderland only scored 57 league goals that season. Phillips got 30 of them. That's 52.6% of their total goals. And only six of them were penalties. Without Phillips's goals for Sunderland that season, they would have had 28 less points. And people are going to say that's a weird stat to use. How can you measure that? I'm measuring it only when his goals directly led to wins or draws. So when he scores a brace against Southampton, they win 2-0. That's three points for Phillips. If they draw 1-0 at West Ham, Phillips gets the goal one point. But if he scores in a 4-0 win, I'm not counting it. If he scores in a 3-1 win and he only gets one, I'm not counting it. He went to the Euros under Kevin Keegan off the back of this season. He won the European Golden Shoe. 
if Kevin Phillips, having never played in the Premier League before, playing with Niall Quinn, getting 30 Premier League goals doesn't make this top 10 in the greatest ever seasons. I don't know what sport you're watching. Number 9, Yaya Torre, 2014. People are going to say this isn't the first time you've mentioned Yaya Torre in the show. What's the story with it? The story is that we're talking about one of the most underrated players of all time. So underrated that you'd nearly question whether there's racism involved in it. What did the guy not have? He could play 10 off the front, tucked in, or he could play centre-back to a close-to-world-class level, but peaked in between both positions. He could break down play as good as anyone. He could create as good as anyone. Perfection in many ways, and he pushed forward late on in games and changed the result for City. In that 9 Barcelona team that won the quadruple, to play centre-back because the midfield of Busquets, Xavi and Iniesta in that team that was that good, and then to go on and become that level of midfielder, it's unheard of. People talk about the 2014 season. They talk about Luis Suarez, and that's what it will always be remembered for. But the fact that Yaya Torre, when City won the league by two points, 86 points, Liverpool's 84, got 20 league goals. 20 league goals, having been a former centre-back. Being a midfielder, traditionally associated with defensive play. To score in the League Cup final as well. Now, Yaya Torre has to be in there. Number eight. The greatest individual seasons ever because it's about their impact, what they symbolize. So when you're talking about the Manchester United treble team of 1999, there's many players you could use, numerous players you could use. But the person I think you have to use, we're talking late 90s, we're talking the Green Mile in the cinemas, we're talking about Westlife in the charts, we're talking about Brill Cream, we're talking about Predator Boots, and we're talking about the runner-up in the Ballon d'Or in 1999, David Beckham, also runner-up in FIFA World Player of the Year that year, which some people weren't before the awards merged together. That's why Michael Owens' Ballon d'Or of 01 doesn't count. He didn't win FIFA World Player of the Year. Now they're merged. It was the cultural effect of Beckham playing for me. That, that means if you're doing the greatest, most important seasons a player's ever had, Beckham of the year after he got sent off in the World Cup for England in 98 and goes on to win the treble for United, playing the joint most games overall that season with Roy Keane at 53, playing the full 90 in both finals, making the PFA Team of the Year just before he fell out with Fergie when he was working hard, when his right foot was a PlayStation game. And people overuse that term now. They say people are reminiscent of, of something you'd see in a console. Now, Beckham's right foot was the most consistent piece of football ever. So you'd have Messi, you'd have Maradona, you'd have Ronaldo, you'd have Zidane, who were consistent at so many things. But they weren't as good at one thing as Beckham was at crossing a football. The best piece of football play ever is Beckham at crossing. He's not in the top 100 players ever, but no one's been better at anything than Beckham has been at crossing. And that was in his height in 1999. He's with Posh, and the world's slightly changed. We're moving online, and you could just tell by looking at this guy that he's going to be part of this world change, and he's possibly going to be a billionaire one day. He's the Michael Jordan of the sport. He's changing everything. 11 Premier League assists that season, 8 Champions League assists and 10 Champions League games. Keane won the Sir Matt Busby Player of the Year award that year, but it just has to be David Beckham, 99. It just has to be. I was in Goodison Park in October 98, and Beckham came over to take a corner. There was people throwing fucking hot dogs at him, telling him they hope his mom gets cancer. Crazy shit. And I've never seen an aura like it off a human being when he was taking the corner. His legs, his shorts, his socks, those boots... That Barnet, that arm motion when he's kicking the ball. Beckham 99-8, greatest Premier League season ever. Seven, I don't like talking about it. I'm going to have to put it in, though, if I'm going to be mature about it. Virgil van Dijk 2019. 
Um, PFA Player of the Year from Centre Half is a huge deal. Uh, wins the European Cup. Arrived the January before at Liverpool in the 2018 season and added 22 league points to their total by the time he'd finished in his second season. You, what he did in the 18-19 campaign, also the 19-20 campaign, but the 18-19 campaign when it was new and some people were shocked I wasn't. You just had that has to be in there. That was, uh, that was scary stuff. Number six, N'Golo Kante 2016. If you're leaving this out of your top 10 season. He's 24. He comes from Cannes. He's essentially a mute alien. He costs 5.6 million. He wins the league with Leicester. We know Mares won PFA Player of the Year. We know Vardy had the record, but it's Kante's league. Everyone knows it's Kante's league. He made us think that Danny Drinkwater was good at football. Chelsea paid £35 million for him. He's played 12 league games for them since. He recently got in a fight with a 16-year-old in an under-23s game, which I'm not even sure is legal. 31 more tackles than anybody in the league in the 2016 season in Golo Kante had. 157 interceptions. As I said before, he won Leicester the league. He, that's that. Will, if the Premier League goes on till 2060, Kante will be in the top 10. Number five, don't like going on about, don't like saying it, Louis Suarez 2014. Yeah, people are going to say, you're leaving the Gerrards out, you're leaving the Rooney's out. I don't see Harry Kane, I don't see Alan Shearer, how can you have Suarez in there? Shearer got these goals. It's not about that, it's about what came with that season. To come off the ban, to be under that media scrutiny for not only the racism issue with Evra, but also the biting incident with Ivanovic. And to be banned for the first four games and then to go on and score 31 in 33 games he played in the league that season with 12 assists by the way his Liverpool team were managed by Brendan Rodgers Joe Allen played John Flanagan played 23 league games Daniel Agger Mignolet no Suarez mattered that season he was culturally significant it got to the point with a Liverpool player and he was so hateable from a United point of view he had so much reason to dislike the guy he literally came to Old Trafford and did an impression of a villain in an actual pantomime there was people saying oh no he is oh no he isn't and Alton Wiley was playing he came to Old Trafford with a literal pipe bomb um, in one game. Didn't shake Evers' hand. There, there was a ridiculous amount of reasons to dislike him. And I do, and still do. But the season, under that media scrutiny, to be that good. Uh, you're very close to the perfect footballer for that season. And has gone on to be. Even at Atletico this season, I think he's 14 and 16. His 2014 season was terrifying. They wouldn't have been in that title race without him. Every time he got the ball... He was more or less the best player in the country. Every time he got the ball, though. Not in and out of games. Not not flashes of genius. Just on his own, basically. In, in his own world for that year. Has to be in there. Number four. This is similar to Beckham because it's about representation. There's many seasons I could select for this guy. But it would be wrong not to select the season that symbolizes him. The season in which he did not lose a game. Thierry Henry, 03-04. Could use 0203 when he got 24 goals, 20 assists, but I'll take 0304. I'll, t- I'll take the 30 league goals. Said he was influenced by Marco Van Basten and the Brazilian Ronaldo. He, he did a pretty good impression of both of them throughout his time at Arsenal. That sun shining down in Highbury, that small pitch, those league titles, was one of the few times as a childhood football fan you were envious, and he represented that. The hat-trick on the last day in Highbury, things like that. They're, they're nothing but a, a summary of the man and one. The ideal athlete, perfect finisher, 
threat from distance, great touch, great vision, great pass, great IQ. And for me, 2004 as a season is just a season in which we all sat back and realized we're never going to forget that guy. Ever. If I have a grandkid, he's going to know who Thierry Henry is by the age of six. Henri 04 is in there. Number three. Again, we're talking Skulls, Keane, Gerrard. They're not in there. Why is Henri in there for that season? And why is Ronaldo in there for the 08 season? Because it changed the world these seasons. Cristiano Ronaldo, underachieving, show pony, diver, comes on the scene in 06, 07 and wins the PFA Player of the Year and Young Player of the Year for the first time since Andy Gray. Scores 23 goals in all competitions. People are asking, can he do it again? He comes back, scores 31 league goals and 42 goals in all comps. We don't need to talk about Ronaldo in, in, in the OA campaign. The European Cup winning, league winning, Cristiano Ronaldo. We don't have to talk about his last three years, in fact, in that Manchester United team from 07 to 09. But when he was wearing the orange boots and every single person between the age of 13 and 17 wanted to be him, it got so embarrassing that there were props in posh rugby schools with his mullet. It wasn't suiting them, but they were still inspired by Cristiano Ronaldo. He brought vapors into other sports as an acceptable piece of footwear. He made it acceptable for athletes of all sports to, to care about their appearance on the pitch. He blurred lines. He brought the importance and social coolness of football to a complete new level. It used to be, let's laugh at those divers, let's pretend we're tough. But when, when American football players and, and rugby players start doing impressions of Ronaldo, suddenly no one's tough anymore. We're just athletes. 2008 is when we looked at that guy. And we go, okay, he's heading the football now. He's decided to start heading the football into the goal at that height. We could cite so many moments, both domestically and in Europe, in which Ronaldo's 08 season changed your life. The header in Roma is the one for me. When he came from Milan, Paul Scholes chips the ball. He crosses through Parma and he arrives on time to head the thing in. He lies on the ground in pain, probably faking because he wanted to overrate the, the masculinity of his actions. The free kick against Portsmouth. We could go on, but Ronaldo away third. And that's the problem. This isn't ranking the greatest Premier League players ever. It's a mixture. So like Ronaldo and Henri, a lot of people would argue they're one and two. Some people have Skulls one. Some people have Gerrard top five, Rooney, Lampard. But Ronaldo and Henri, they're different gravy just in terms of when they, when they reached a certain level, they had to be represented. They're much more culturally significant figures than any of those people I just mentioned. And those two seasons were the they were the peak, impactful times for those two individuals. Number two, I've said it before and I'll say it again. We might possibly never again see a centre-back perform like John Terry performed in the 0405 campaign. Academy guy has the luxury of playing with Marcel Desailly for his first four years of the club. Desailly, a two-time European Cup winner. 93 at Marseille, 94 at Milan. That's how good we're talking. John Terry steps in beside him. Ranieri leaves after one season of Abramovich. Mourinho comes in and SIE all leave simultaneously. John Terry's on his own. Sink or swim. John Terry swam. Not only did he get eight goals in all competitions that season, and I'm pretty sure this stat has been mentioned on the show before and it's going to be mentioned again. They conceded 15 league goals in 38 games. Six at home. Do you know how easy it is to concede a goal? We're talking deflections, bad decisions, penalties, long-range shots that you can't stop. Do you know how many minutes, hours, seconds of Chelsea not conceding 
that is in a football game. Do you know how often we were sitting there watching Chelsea not conceding a goal for that year? Petr Cech got 24 Premier League clean sheets that season. Chelsea only conceded two goals twice in the season. And I've been scared many times as a Manchester United fan. I was scared of Wenger's Arsenal. The Klopp thing didn't get me as much because there, there was an element of something missing about the character that I didn't think this thing's going to hang around for five or six years. But probably the most fearful I've ever been. And maybe part of that is because United aren't as good anymore, so it's not really my fucking business what those stupid cunts are up to. But when Jose Mourinho used to come on looking like George Clooney and wrap an arm around John Terry and another arm around Frank Lampard, you ask yourself, what are you going to do? How long is this going to go on for? And is Manchester United going to go into liquidation off the back of this? There was a time where you could actually, if someone sat you down when Mourinho was coming on the pitch, hugging John Terry, John Terry will come out after doing an impression of Bobby Moore mixed with Franco Baresi for 90 minutes and just say exactly what you want your captain to say. If you told somebody that they're going to win the league for the next 16 years, you would have believed them. 16 straight, you wouldn't have questioned them. You go, 16, grand. But luckily, Mourinho has minor personality problems and, and he ends up leaving Chelsea. Number one, statistically, nowhere near it in terms of greatest seasons of all time. Performance-wise, you could even question it. But in terms of how impressive this season was on a psychological and individual level, nothing exceeds Eric Cantona, 95 96. Having received a 10-month ban in 94, 95 for letting somebody know that you do not disrespect the king, Cantona gets a 10-month ban. When the day comes to make a statement to the media waiting, he decides to say, when Seagulls follows the solar, it is because they think Sardines will be thrown into the sea. Thank you. And walks off. Complete enigma. There's talks of retirement. There's talks of going into Hollywood. Something he's still failing to do. United don't win the league, Blackburn do. United were missing somebody to lead from the front. The role Cantona did to perfection when he conducted the orchestra. Week in, week out. Comes to the club, ends a 27-year drought in 92-93 by winning the league. We go again in 93-94, winning our first ever double. Cantona's out for the end of the 95 season. We failed to win the league. It looked like it was just going to be a two-year run in the sun for Fergie's United. People thought it was over. Similar to what people are saying about Klopp now. So Fergie in the summer of 95 responds by getting rid of Ince, Hughes and Kachelskis. The media go wild. They're saying it's over. When's he going to be sacked? United don't start the season too brilliantly. Averagely. But the, the opening day loss is iconic at Villa. Cantona comes back in October. We draw it home at Liverpool. And he's 10 months out of the game. It looks like he's past it. It looks like he doesn't know what he's doing anymore. And he's no longer interested. And by the time Stevenson's day comes in 1995, United are 12 points behind Newcastle. Cantona grabs these kids, puts them under his wing. He says, I don't know if I've told you boys, but I, I don't do anything but win leagues. I played in 93, we won the league. I played in 94, we won the league. What happened in 95 when I was gone? When I was on the catwalk in France? What did you fuckers do here? But I only win leagues. Cantona leads Manchester United on a run of games. Between mid-March and mid-April 96, he scores in six straight games, four of which were 1-0 Manchester United. 
United go on to win the league by four points. And in the FA Cup final that year against Liverpool, Canton, I guess the winner of the 86 minute to complete the double. United win the league again in Cantona's last season, being 97, before he retired at 30 to make it four leagues, four seasons in which he was allowed to fully play. What Cantona did that season didn't just mean that Manchester United added another league to the tally, but it set us up for the future. If we hadn't won that 96 league, I don't know if you're seeing 97. And if you're not seeing 97 and then Wenger comes and they get 98 anyway, are we seeing the treble? Are we seeing 00? Are we seeing 01? Eric Cantona in 1996 created a footballing dynasty. As close to creating a footballing dynasty as a player would have the power to do. Obviously Fergie was there, which was, was huge help, and there was great players around him. But it was Cantona's character and refusal to lose that set Manchester United up for years of late winners and years of being the most romantic club in the history of English football. We will continue to drink and drink to Eric the King. Canton 96, number one on my list. Thanks for tuning in to the MA Show. We have some guests coming up right the show on Apple Podcasts. MA Show. It's been how many years, my oh, boy? Audio books, David. You still don't know my chairs of joy. No need to go, just take it slow And have you heard the Michael Anthony show? Makes me feel just fine Makes me see the light What about those tears? My eyes, the hell's it make a fit? Makes me feel alright. Yeah.